Hey, welcome to the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm your host, Howard Jacobson. Today's show, we're talking about food, and we're talking about foodie food, about some of the best chefs in the world, the best restaurants in the world, the best recipes in the world, and the best cookbooks in the world. And today's guest has written a couple of them. If I were to go over all of Karen Page's accolades, uh, that introduction would take longer than the interview itself, so you can catch a link to her bio in the show notes and be suitably impressed. Um, But I will say this, I have owned a lot of cookbooks in my life. I still own a bunch of them, but many have come and gone. Um, I don't eat that way anymore, or I just kind of tired of them. And I realized that that if I had all those cookbooks, you know, like the old Tassahara bread cookbook and the original Moosewood cookbook and Laurel's Kitchen and and the, the, the vegetarian epicure and a lot of the, the older books that I really uh, no longer use, I kind of have a, a history of the vegetarian movement in the United States and to some extent in, in, in the world. Um, over the last 40 or 50 years. And I didn't realize that until I opened the Vegetarian Flavor Bible, the volume that we're going to be talking about today. It is a remarkable volume. Um, Karen and and her husband Andrew's, um, one of their other books, the Flavor Bible, is pretty much on the shelves of every great chef, every great restaurant in the world, just like every physician would have a copy of the physician's desk reference and every travel agent would have a, uh, a gazetteer in an atlas. Well, every chef has a copy of the Flavor Bible because it, it is the DNA for how to create recipes, how to create new dishes. And Karen, um, unbelievably as someone who has been so heavily involved in haute cuisine, in, in cooking just you know, every kind of food and a lot of meat and dairy, um, has moved over to the whole food plant-based camp. And she's done it partly for health reasons, but also because she and a bunch of other chefs have discovered that it just tastes better. And of all the reasons I know to go plant-based, that is one of the most surprising, and yet once we had the conversation, one of the most obvious that I've ever heard. And I think you will be enriched, enchanted, and your stomach will be rumbling by the end of today's podcast. So without further ado, Karen Page, welcome to the Plant Yourself Podcast. Thanks so much for having me. I'm happy to be here with you. Yeah, I'm really excited about this call because uh, I've, I've been pouring over the Vegetarian Flavor Bible, and I just want to talk food with you. <laughs> Everybody likes to talk food. Who doesn't like to talk food? Yeah, but it's, this, this is different. This is, this is um, you know, I've talked to a lot of cookbook authors, and th- I mean, you know, at first I thought this was going to be a cookbook, and we'll get into what the, what the Bible is and and isn't in a little bit, but I've got to say this is this is just going re- going through the book, preparing for this interview was kind of like eating at the world's best restaurants. Like it really had that kind of um, imaginal, uh, you know, I- importance for me. So I just want well, I want to thank you for for that experience already. Well, thank you for that introduction. I'm glad to hear that you're getting that out of it because that's certainly the intention when the book was being written. Cool. 
So, well, let's get to the book in a little bit, but I often like to start by asking people about their backstories. And yours is, is very interesting to me in that you had a really vested interest in being a full-on omniv- omnivorous foodie. So, you know, you'd written a, a, a book that was called, you know, one of, one of the most important cookbooks of the, of the century. Um, you've won two James Beard Awards. You know, you're, you're a big deal in the world of food. And, you know, it, it must have taken something kind of extraordinary to get you to do this personal and professional uh, shift. I would say that that's absolutely the case. And I think in some cases, I can't believe it myself. And certainly um, my husband, Andrew, and I still go into restaurants and the chefs will come over to the table and they'll say, oh, so you're still doing that vegetarian thing? And, you know, when are you going to come back? Um, So I think we're well known as uh, being omnivores for most of our professional lives as food writers. And, yeah, it was a pretty extraordinary experience um, that got us to changed those ways. Um, Back in the end of 2009, I lost my father. And um, about three years before that, uh, I'd lost my stepmother as Andrew had lost his parents um, in the years before that. So from 2000 to 2009, we'd lost four parents. And it was a situation where we really couldn't ignore those headlines we'd been ignoring um, that were linking nutrition and wellness. And so we started thinking about the fact that we probably wanted to do something a little differently in terms of making our food choices and what we were choosing to put into our bodies when we weren't eating professionally, so to speak. So that is when we started contemplating um, what we should be eating to protect our health. And since we'd lost four parents all the cancer. And um, given everything we're reading about the United States health crisis, um, led us to the nutritional literature, which led us to the same conclusion that Michael Pollan came to in Omnivore's Dilemma, that um, nutritional experts disagree about a lot of things, but the one thing they all agree on is that a plant-based diet is best. And so as two omnivores who, you know, were basically hedonistic foodies eating anything and everything we wanted on a regular basis, we thought, well, um, let's try a plant-based diet and stopped eating meat. And that was back in May of 2012. So I'm curious about what got you to even ask the question, because most people know, you know, have relatives who die of cancer or heart disease who are suffering from sequelae from stroke, who have diabetes, and everyone's on meds. And it's just normal. Like most people don't even think that, you know, cancer is an abnormal thing. The statistics come out, you know, one in nine women will get breast cancer and one in seven men will get prostate cancer or whatever they happen to be these days. What made you think that this was something other than normal and something that you could do something about? Well, I think I didn't necessarily see it as something other than normal, but I did see it as something I wanted to try to avoid. And so when I started reading up on it, um, looking up leading causes of death, what is behind cancer, what are the contributing factors? And um, frankly, at first I was worried about genetics until I learned that it's only 2 to 3% of the um, impact uh, is genetic to cancer is, is what 
I was led to believe and that basically the other factors tended to be nutritional and lifestyle factors. And so those were within my control, even if genetics was sort of a done deal. I could control what I ate. I could control whether I worked out. And so I started to look at you know, kind of the grass is greener, you know, thing. I, I can't do anything about my genes, but I can certainly do something about what I choose to put into my body and how often I move it. And so I really wanted to um, really take control, take take action on those things I could control and kind of leave the rest up to the universe. And so that is when I started looking at nutrition. And like I said, I'd, as a professional food writer, when I would read about food, it was really about flavor. It was, as you said, about what's going on in the best restaurants around the world and certainly across America, which is where we've put most of our focus in terms of our research, which historically has been about flavor, first and foremost, how do the best chefs in the world really approach the subject of flavor? How do they create the most extraordinary flavors? And so we have been studying their best practices for the last, the better part of the last 20 years. And that was really our, first and foremost, our primary um, interest was flavor, was deliciousness, was how do you make this happen in your own home kitchen or for the great numbers of professional chefs who follow our work, how do you do this in a restaurant kitchen? How can you replicate or imitate um some of what is going on in some of the best restaurants elsewhere. So those were the things that we were studying. Health really had no, nothing to do with it up until very recently when we started to <laughs> unfortunately realize our own mortality and, and wanting to um, uh, take that into account. And I think that there was sort of an underlying assumption, too, that the two were mutually exclusive, that if I was a hedonist that was interested in flavor and deliciousness, well, of course, you know, that had to include things like foie gras and truffles and caviar and butter and cream and, you know, all of the, the things that are associated with, say, French oat cuisine or um, modern gastronomy. And I, I think we've been, um, again, my husband and I personally, through the course of writing as many books as we've written now about food and restaurants and the best chefs, um, we've evolved in our understanding and our beliefs about flavor as certainly um, the leading chefs are evolving and certainly the um, clientele that is supporting the greatest restaurants, they too are reading the same headlines, losing loved ones to chronic diseases and putting two and two together to realize, hey, I don't want to pay that price anymore. I'm going to stop ordering the butter and cream laden dishes and um, in fact, there has been a movement away from animal-based proteins, um, certainly a huge growth in the number of vegetarian and even vegan tasting menus that are offered in the best restaurants uh, across the country and around the world. So there, there are so many different threads. I mean, it, it's, it sounds a little nonlinear, but there are so many different threads that are coming together in, at this extraordinary point in time. Um, and those are some of the threads that I tried to follow in the Vegetarian Flavor Bible and really explain through uh, history what the gastronomic threads have been, what the agricultural threads have been, what the ethical and environmental and health-related scientific threads 
kids have been and how they're coming to this point in time where we are, in fact, finally, for the first time in American history, starting in 2007, declining in our per capita meat consumption. And, um, you know, we're all kind of getting the memo, hey, we shouldn't be eating certainly not as much meat as we've eaten in the past. And uh, in many cases, maybe we shouldn't be eating it at all. Um, So, you know, we're taking on lots of questions in terms of what we eat, how we eat, uh, what's important to us. And I'm saying we, in a general sense, as an industry, uh, as a country, but also we in the sense of my husband, Andrew, and I, as two individuals trying to take into consideration, you know, an infinite number of factors, our own pleasure um, balanced against our own health and our desire for longevity and making very different decisions than we made five years ago. So I, w- I want to get into all those issues and uh, kind of follow the threads, as you said. Um, but first, this issue of the trade-off. So when, when you decided, okay, we want to live long, we want to avoid our parents' uh, health fates. So does, was there a sense of, well, the, the party's over? <laughs> well, the the idea of a vegan or vegetarian diet held no appeal to either of us whatsoever. I mean, I just thought, you know, that's great that nutritional science has gotten to this point where it says that this is best if you're interested in health, but boy, that has no interest in me. So I, I did feel the party was over, but yet there was this part of me that said, okay, well, you know, maybe it would be good, you know, not such a bad thing for me to do for a year or two while I'm researching this new book and, you know, see what I might learn, I might learn something interesting. So, and in fact, I think what And I kind of thought I was going to stick it out for a year or two and and see how it went. But in fact, what my eyes were open to was the fact that there was no sacrifice involved. In fact, it was a great gift to be able to give up uh, eating meat and certainly cutting back um, significantly on dairy. because what I found was that I, just my experience of life was completely different. I had never experienced being a vegetarian before in my life. It never held any appeal. And yet when I myself did it, I, I noticed things changing physically, emotionally, mentally. Um, for example, after dinner uh, in the old days, every day after dinner, you know, I would have a stomachache. And I just thought, well, that's it. You eat dinner, you get a stomachache, you go to bed, you wake up in the morning, it's gone or it's not. You know, I just thought that was the normal way of living. And in fact, the other normal way of living since I grew up in the Midwest eating, you know, meat probably two or three at least times a day, um, that was just normal. People ate meat, people ate cheese, people ate eggs. And so when I stopped eating meat, the first thing I noticed, like literally within days, it's, wait a minute, it's after dinner and I don't have stomach ache. What's going on? And it happened, you know, for a few days and it happened for a week. I'm like, I don't have stomach aches after dinner anymore. And I thought, isn't that interesting that my whole life, I just thought that was normal. And I'm redefining what normal is and what it can be. I've also struggled with my weight um, my entire life, you know, not dramatically, but, you know, sometimes an extra 10, 20 or more pounds um, that I just couldn't. And I didn't feel like I was eating huge quantities of food, but I just couldn't seem to shake it. And so um, I just took it, well, I guess I'm one of those people that just carries extra weight. I'm, I'm not able to lose weight. The other thing that happened immediately after stopping eating meat is because, and I you know, did the, ran the numbers afterwards to try to figure out how it happened, but when you stop eating calorically dense food and you switch to nutrient-dense food that has far fewer calories, you're actually eating a greater quantity of food, but taking in 
fewer calories overall. And so what happened was that the weight kind of fell off and it wasn't intentional. I didn't stop eating meat to lose weight, but boy, it was certainly <laughs> a welcome uh, uh, effect of stopping eating meat. And the same happened to my husband as well. It's like, the you know, oh, the belt loop, you know, I have to go to the next belt loop on the belt and um, gee, I got to have these pants taken and I've got to have this skirt taken in. So we both noticed it um, fairly quickly and, and fairly dramatically, I think, for two people who, you know, had had our own struggles, similar struggles um, in terms of weight management. So again, my redefinition of normal was, you know, how is my body supposed to feel on a regular basis? Oh, it's not supposed to be in pain. How about that? And that's exactly what happens when I stopped eating meat. How much is my body supposed to weigh? Well, you know, the, the, all the, the charts tell me this. I can't get it down to that weight range and whoa I stopped eating meat and there it is right in the normal range for the first time in my life or for the first time in years so it's been a very interesting journey that way to really redefine um, what is normal and it's happened on all kinds of levels so here's the effect the overall effect the the vegetarian flavor bible has had on me Mm. is that almost Every other vegetarian or vegan cookbook that I've ever owned and used has some element of trade-off in it, of sacrifice, of, yeah, I know you grew up loving this, but, and then, you know, it'll come up with the health reasons or the environmental reasons or the (laughs) ethical animal reasons. And your cookbook very quickly took me to a place of, this is the next step in the evolution of gastronomy and cuisine that this is actually superior it's we're not we're giving up nothing and we're gaining a whole new world so i was i'm wondering if that's what you were intending when you put the you know the finishing touches on the book <laughs> yes uh in bold underlined capital letters three exclamation points um absolutely i do believe that so deeply and i think that the proof is in the fact that i could not have stayed vegetarian um for as long as i had if i didn't find it gastronomically satisfying. Um, I am too much of a hedonist. I've been a hedonist all my life. Um, I've got friends who (laughs) um, are shocked that I would even try such a thing. And I think no one is more shocked than I am that it has been not just satisfying, not just, you know, it's fine. It's good enough. It's amazing. I'm amazed at what I've learned about flavor through the process of stopping eating meat. And and again, it's not just me. I mean, what I'm really excited about is not only our my eyes opening, but I see that leading chefs' eyes have been opening in recent years. You know, there was an example um, a few years ago, we were interviewing James Beard award-winning chef Michel Richard about his French onion soup, and he's a classically trained French chef. French-born, French-trained, um, and he, of course, made his French onion soup with a meat stock. And he said that after a visit to a Japanese restaurant, he realized the miso soup he had was so amazing that it had so much umami and, and flavor to it that he stopped using meat stock as the basis of his classic French onion soup and started using miso instead. And that's, in fact, one of the tips that's recommended in the Vegetarian Flavor Bible is you can swap out instead of beef 
stock, use a dark miso. Instead of chicken stock, use a lighter miso that you can get more flavor, more richness, you know, that, that indescribable umami flavor, which translates as sort of savoriness or deliciousness in the Japanese culture. You can get these extraordinary flavors through plant-based ingredients. You don't have to turn to animal products for them. And yet, you know, so much of what we eat in so many ways is dependent on our histories. You know, we do things the same way we've always done them because we've always done them that way. That's our culture. That's our tradition. And a lot of people hold that sacred and sacrosanct when, in fact, I think we should be holding flavor sacrosanct. And, in fact, if in the name of the evolution of flavor, we evolve away from meat stocks toward misos or toward vegetable stocks or mushroom stocks, you know, that's the name, that's all in the name of progress. You know, you don't have to call it, you know, something what I'm doing for my health, something I'm doing for the environment. And yet it's all those things too, which make it even more fabulous. But just merely in the name of flavor to evolve to a different place, I think that is what has me so excited about the work that I did through the Vegetarian Flavor Bible. And more importantly, through to the evolution of cuisine today, what is going on with cuisine today, you know, I don't run a professional kitchen. I'm not a professional chef. I have tracked the leading chefs in America for the last 20 years. I've interviewed hundreds of them. I've tasted their food. I've looked at what they've done. I've analyzed it. I've thought about it. I've written about it. But they're the ones who are really on the front line creating the future of food day in and day out. And they're the ones who are also getting these insights independently and from one another and taking action on it in the name of flavor and and in the name of other compelling reasons to change the future of food. And, and that is what's so exciting. I think food is getting better. I think it's getting more delicious. And I think that over the next 10 years, we're going to continue to see it to change. You know, um, the great chef, Joe Robuchon, who has one of the best restaurants in the world, was interviewed last fall. And in October, he was quoted as saying that the cuisine of the next 10 years will be vegetarian. And I thought it was an extraordinary uh, thing he's, when he said it in October, and I have thought a lot about it since then, and I think he just might be right that I think that the world can be moving in that direction in a major way, and certainly gastronomy is moving in that direction in a major way as chefs do what the best chefs do. They respond to their customers. They want to treat please their customers. And so as their customers are demanding more plant-based dishes, they're providing them. Uh, Proactively, they're providing better tasting dishes, which turn out to be plant-based dishes. And vegetables are becoming the center of the plate, whereas once it was all about the animal protein in the center of the plate, that is shifting to the most uh, flavor-filled ingredients on the plate, which are the vegetables. And so the cover of Food & Wine magazine a year ago, August, said vegetables are the new cupcake, the new artisanal beer, the new bacon <laughs> wrapped into one. It's really where it's all happening, and I think it's absolutely true. So so one thing that I got from your book, um, which is just, you know, it's, it's like fireworks of positivity. Like every, everything in here is just, you know, so full of joy and hope. But was that the the profession, the uh, the culinary profession, the chefs, um, the recipe developers, um, are really communicating with each other, working hard, and evolving in ways that I don't see in a lot of other industries. That there seem you know there seems to be something about 
the culinary world with people like you as kind of the, the messenger molecules back and forth that um, creates innovation at maybe a faster pace than, than some other professions? Is that accurate? I think that's a wonderful observation, and it's something that really appealed to me about the culinary profession since day one, because I saw it happening even before Al Gore invented the Internet. <laughs> um, I, I think we saw in different pockets of communities in New York City and Boston, where we were based while I was in graduate school, um, we saw these chefs who basically were competitors. I mean, I went to business school. I have my MBA. I you know, know an industry when I see one, and yes, indeed, there they're competing for accolades or competing for customers, but they didn't see it that way. They treated themselves like respected colleagues and they've been idea sharing for a really long time. There's a very close chef community in Boston. Um, there are pockets of, because New York's so much bigger, there are pockets of that community in New York. And it's been so interesting. If you pick up a recent issue, I think it's the March issue of Elle magazine. There's a family tree of some of the most famed um, goddesses of food uh, and, and some of the chefs who trained with them. And so um, my husband, Andrew Dornenberg, is featured on the list of chefs who studied under Anne Rosenzweig, who was uh, back in 1992, one of the first chefs, period, not women chefs, but chefs, period, to be named to the White House's Kitchen Cabinet of American Chefs um, for her celebration of of American cuisine. And people, you know, don't realize how quickly things change. Um, not so long ago, prior to the Clinton White House, uh, when um, foreigners would come to the United States and eat a state dinner at the White House, they would be served French cuisine, the menus would be written in French, the wines would be French, and because that was considered, you know, the, the epitome of um, haute cuisine, and that dates back to Jack, Jackie Kennedy um, bringing in a French chef into the White House to uh, really set those standards, and again, just out of tradition, it just continued from the early 60s until the early 90s, until uh, the Clinton administration said, you know, enough is enough. We've got great American ingredients. We've got great American wines. It's time to celebrate them. So they brought in Larry Forgio and they brought in Anne Rosenzweig, who my husband Andrew trained with, um, to really celebrate American cuisine. And I think in terms of the White House getting involved in food, you know, now uh, it's, I, I think that was a great precedent. You know, I think Jackie Kennedy and her you know, day and time, God bless her, for bringing in and sort of elevating cuisine to uh, a different level in the United States in the White House. But I think, you know, time doesn't stand still. Evolution um, pushes forward. We needed to individuate as a country to really celebrate, hey, we're not, we, we're not going to celebrate France in, in, in the uh, state dinners anymore. We're going to celebrate the best of American cuisine. And also the best of American cuisine can be uh, that our country is a melting pot, too. So we're bringing in all of these different influences from all around the world and bringing that uh, to unite with some of our own traditions from the Southwest, from the South, from the New England, uh, through the Mid-Atlantic and elsewhere. And so I think we're in that next process of evolution where it's not just about American ingredients and American wines, but that deliciousness uh, is empty without being paired with healthfulness and that we don't have to sacrifice one for the other anymore. And I think that knowledge is becoming more and more widespread. Right. Well, m maybe it's just me, but kind of, I, I, I was looking at my notes from the book, and I, keep, I made a lot of sort of sexual metaphors 
Um, Do tell. <laughs> I know your pre- your predilections for olive oil already <laughs> from our previous conversation uh, with uh, via the Esselstyns. <laughs> so, well, I mean, the, th- the first thing I thought was, you know, that that you guys and then various other chefs have kind of come out as ve- vegetarian friendly, and it really, it really did seem like. You know, spending time in a in a closet and then allowing yourselves to feel liberated in this way. But but the the, ma- the main metaphor was that when you talk about like the evolution of food must include health as well as what it feels like in the moment. It feels like the, the, a lot of cooking shows, a lot of um, food writers who are gastronomists and hedonists really separate the two in a way that it's like, you know, like a sex manual completely divorced from, <laughs> from, from intimacy, love, respect. It's simply like the, the carnal pleasure of the moment. And, you know, we wouldn't stand for a sex book. Uh, I mean, maybe Fifty Shades of Grey is a, is, is, is a little bit of an exception, but, the, you know, that, that didn't take into account the higher notes and the lower notes of, of commitment, of love, of, of a spiritual merging. And it feels like that's what's happening to food, the, the way you narrate this, this move towards a, a marriage of the, you know, the immediate pleasure and the long-term health. I, I think that's incredibly beautifully put. I, I don't know that I could put it any better than that. I think that that's really true. That um, so for so long we used the language, you know, say back in the '60s and the 1970s when Gail Green was a very uh, powerful and influential critic, maybe the most influential critic of those decades, where there was uh, using a lot of that. Um, lustful language about food and kind of transferring it over to food. And there was a lot of talk of indulgence and this was a sinfully delicious chocolate cake. You know, there was a lot of emotions wrapped up into food that way. And I think we've sort of taken that as far as we can and we've taken it too far, frankly. Um, You know, I think in the food world, you'll see a celebration of um, carnivorousness for carnivorousness's sake, uh, if there is such a thing. Um, There's something called the carnivore's ball um, of people celebrating meat. And I think it's taking, you know, uh, cultural traditions too far um, and um, losing track of you know, I think I think we're kind of reclaiming um, our right to you know what is good, what is true, what is beautiful in food, and we're start we're starting to put our hands up and say no. You know, the the delicious excesses of too much chocolate. You know, they were great for a while, and we had a lot of fun. But when we look at the price we're paying now as a country and as individuals. Um, we're not going to do that anymore. We're going to seek another balance with that. And so I think, you know, it's not that we're becoming uh, more stoic about our food. We're not, it's not that we're saying, you know, um, <laughs> no and, and always no. We're, we're just trying to, you know, 
tilt the teeter-totter back in the other direction. So we might have gone over, you know, maybe we started out, we eat, we eat to live, we eat to survive, we eat for health, and then we ate for convenience, and then we ate for indulgence. And now when we're seeing the effects of that, when, when we can no longer ignore the nutritional science that says, hey, you eat too much fat, you eat too much sugar, you eat too much animal protein, this is what's going to happen. And we see it. I mean, when I, as a professional food writer, looked at the fact that the number one cause of death in America today is nutritionally preventable diseases, I was embarrassed professionally that I had never cared about nutrition, that I'd never thought about nutrition, that it was never even on my radar is something that I thought it was important to write about. And now that I've quote unquote seen the light and seen you know, the price that America has been paying, um, I can't imagine ever writing about food again without that knowledge, without that sense of responsibility. And as you say, you know, it's not, um, it, it's not one thing or the other. It's not black or white. It's really embracing the beauty of gray and saying, well, yeah, it's still got to be delicious, but how do, how do we, how do we have both? How do we have the best of both worlds? The healthfulness that is going to continue to sustain us um, nutritionally and the deliciousness that we've come to demand, we've come to expect, and that we've come to enjoy. And the the great news is that you can have both. But I think that how we're creating that is just, you know, it, it's uh, in the beginning stages. It's moving beyond the very beginning stages. So we're seeing now, you know, a whole host of vegan restaurants that are not serving sprouts and brown rice with macrame hangings on the wall, sort of the, the awful... Um, stereotype of the 1960s or 1970s restaurants, what we're seeing is crossroads in Los Angeles, where Tall Ronin is uh, not even calling it a vegan restaurant because it's just it's just a great restaurant. You know, he, why should you put a name on it when people can come in and have a good time without even realizing that they're at a restaurant that doesn't serve meat? dairy or eggs, or a place like Veg in Philadelphia, where Rich Landau was just named a semifinalist for the James Beard Award for Best Chef in the Mid-Atlantic. And Alan Richmond, the James Beard Award-winning restaurant critic for GQ, named that restaurant one of the best new restaurants of the year, the year it opened, saying, how is it the vegan cuisine has come this far, this fast, without an accompanying outpouring of acclaim? And I think it's true. I think that this is something that's kind of snuck up on the world quickly, um, how far these restaurants have come. I mean, p- restaurants like Candle 79 in New York City and the Candle Cafes in New York City and others have been out there for quite a long time, um, and yet we've sort of taken them for granted or they've been a little bit on the margins. But now that 54% of America is looking to reduce or completely eliminate meat from their diets, these restaurants are becoming center stage, and we're taking a look at them for their examples of what they're doing in cuisine, um, what can... Other vegan or vegetarian restaurants learn from them and what they've proven is successful with their customer base. What can other mainstream restaurants look to them for uh, as they're coming up with their new specials for Meatless Mondays or um, to expand the vegetarian sections of uh, regular omnivorous menus? Um, They're really... um, uh, first and foremost, um, on the front lines um, of what they've been doing for so long and what they're continuing to push the envelope on for a whole new standard for what is great plant-based cuisine. Mm -hmm. 
So you got into this uh, plant-based world in 2012, and you, it's your book came out in 2014. And for people who haven't held it in their hands yet, this thing is a monster. <laughs> it's, it's 550 pages, and there, there's no fluff. The, the, the largest part of it, chapter three, is an, a literal encyclopedia of food, of flavor pairings, um, of every single thing imaginable. And you did it really quickly. Were, were you surprised at how much um, support you had from other chefs? from not just, you know, the Tal Ronins, but the Jean-Georges Vonderichten, I'm not sure if I'm saying that exactly right, but sort of mainstream top-level chefs who had something to say and something to add to the, the plant-based gastronomy discussion. Yeah, I think chefs have always been, you know, amazingly generous um, and supportive of our work and I think of the industry in general. Um, one of the great French chefs, Fernand Poin, once said that it's the duty of a cuisinaire to share uh, what he's learned, he or she has learned, uh, with the next generation. And I think that the best chefs really do take that to heart and they're very generous in sharing their knowledge and certainly have been with us for all of our previous books, including the original Flavor Bible that came out in 2008, um, but for the Vegetarian Flavor Bible, you know, a number of these chefs have been paving the way sort of quietly um, in terms of what they're doing with vegetarian and vegan cuisine. Some of them, for example, Thomas Keller of the French Laundry and Per Se, um, he's been offering a vegetarian menu since the 1990s, and you can go into vet, um, Per Se or the French Laundry and order a vegetarian or vegan tasting menu. It's, I believe, the same price as the regular menu, so uh, it, and again, it's just as labor intensive as the regular menu. Um, but he's been out there, not really, you know, not as a vegetarian chef, not as a vegan chef, but certainly as a mainstream chef who certainly um, embraces the um, an omnivorous menu in for the rest of his customers who enjoy it. But has always felt that that is um, something that he wanted to offer for his customers who wanted it. Um, that vegetarian vegetarian and vegan tasting menu. And, you know, I think that is true of the very best restaurants in America today, and certainly increasingly in the world today, that you can expect to find a vegetarian or even a vegan tasting menu, because they're making uh, their food available to the greatest number of customers. Again, as their customers are getting more conscientious and making those requests, they want to be able to serve them. So proactively, um, even before this current wave, you know, the post-2007 wave where we've seen that tremendous decline in per capita meat consumption, um, you know, back in the 1990s when that number, that per capita meat consumption number was still climbing, um, people like Thomas Keller, Daniel Ballou, others were ahead of the curve and already proactively offering those vegetarian and vegan tasting menus in the name of cuisine alone. And I, I should not neglect mentioning uh, the late chef Charlie Trotter, who I think was a real pioneer. He not only cooked uh, the first um, vegetable-based dinner at the James Beard House, making history for doing that. But he was also well-known for putting up one of the best vegetarian-tasting menus on his uh, restaurant menu at Charlie Trotter's in Chicago, and uh, actually even wrote a book on raw cuisine <laughs> before it was, you know, way before its time. 
So he he was really a pioneer in getting the world of gastronomy, um, you know, sort of making that front and center um, and making it something that other chefs wouldn't want to emulate and certainly did across the country in choosing to offer their own similar tasting menus. Mm. Yeah, I was I was struck both by the generosity and also by the depth of experience that many of these chefs had already had with um, moving towards more plant-based uh, ingredients and processes. I'm looking at um, the, your section on maximizing flavor, and you, know, you, you already told about um, um, Richard. Um, yeah. Michel Richard's um, French onion soup, but there was there's there's dozens and dozens of stories like this. You have a story about Terence Brennan of uh, Picoline. Who, yes. who has a great, you could talk, talk about his evolution for his winter squash soup, which I, I found just fascinating. No, and, and again, it was surprising because we had this conversation in the name of flavor, not in the name of health, not in the name of anything else. And so I was talking to him, I, and, and if you've never been to Picheline Restaurant um, in New York City, actually, well, I'll take you there sometime if you come to New York, um, and I'll let you taste his butternut squash soup, which is extraordinary. I think it's the best I've ever tasted. And I noticed that over the years, because we've been eating there now um, for the better part of 20 years, um, I've noticed that it gotten better and better. And I said, what was the process like of developing your winter squash soup? And so what he said was, you know, he started out, again, classically trained French chef. He got his start working at Le Cirque in New York City, where, of course, the basic the basis of any classic uh, kitchen is they teach you the the font of uh, French cuisine is French technique, which means infusing the flavor of meat into everything, essentially. So they would make, you know, French stock out of bones that they would roast and they would turn into stock and that would become the basis of soups and sauces and so forth. And so he said, well, like any good French-trained chef, I used a meat stock in my butternut squash soup. And at one point recently, it occurred to me that if I used a veg stock, it would enhance the flavor of the soup. So I did that. And then I realized, well, if I'm using vegetables, why don't I use squash? And that will intensify the flavor of the squash soup further. So I did. And then I realized, here I am, given my French training, adding cream to add a bit of richness to the soup. But basically, when I puree the soup, it doesn't need richness. It's already creamy. So I took the cream out. And what I realized was that intensified the flavor of the butternut squash soup. So from each step of the process, it went, it suddenly became, again, in the name of gastronomy, a vegan soup, not based on demand from customers, not based on anything else other than the sheer goal of making the best possible soup. So isn't it interesting that maybe meat-based protein has been holding back gastronomy when we've been infusing this flavor of meat into all of these dishes because that's what French cooking schools have been teaching and that's what French chefs have been passing along to their apprentices for years and years and years. Now that we're finally looking at flavor and saying, huh, what can I do in the name of flavor to improve this dish? It's involving taking out the meat-based stock. It's involving leaving off the cream. It doesn't need the cream. And besides, there are other ways in the Vegetarian Flavor Bible that we talk about adding creaminess without cream. You know, you can take, say, a celery root, um, 
cook it, puree it, take that puree, add that to your sauce, it will add the creaminess and richness that you are looking for without adding cream. And it's also adding flavor, which is something that cream, you know, is very neutral, what we call quiet, a very quiet flavor. But actual celery root is adding, you know, additional flavor of its own to the soup. So there's lots of examples like that. And and in fact, that was part of my process through the research for this book was realizing I would use shorthand all the time. I would say, oh, I'm crazy about bacon. I love bacon. I can't imagine a life without bacon. Life without bacon isn't worth living. Mm -hmm. And what I came to realize when I stopped eating meat in May of 2012, that was one of my big concerns. What am I going to do without bacon? What what I realized was that I wasn't craving the the bacon per se. I was craving the crispiness. I was craving the smokiness. I was craving the richness, and then I could get all of those other attributes through other plant-based ingredients, or certainly through other, uh, I started with vegetarian ingredients, because one of the first tricks I learned was taking um, uh, slices of thinly sliced provolone, I could fry them up in a pan, sprinkle them with a little smoked paprika, and I was using that as a bacon, a non-meat bacon substitute. Um, then I got to a point where, you know, it's still pretty pretty rich and pretty heavy. I went to Real Food Daily in Los Angeles, and I would ordered, we just got off the plane, we were checking it out for the first time, I ordered the, um, I think it's a TLT or TBLT, the tempeh bacon lettuce and tomato sandwich. And it had really thin, really crispy, really smoky tempeh bacon. Best tempeh BLT I've ever had in my life. I've never had one quite that good again, but I know that that's the potential for a tempeh BLT. And so I know that once chefs and the their suppliers get it right and get the process down, that will be widely available throughout the country. And I don't have to wait for my trips to LA to go and order that exact sandwich again. I'll be able to get it in New York or Chicago or anywhere else in the country. So I think that's the stage that we're in in the United States where we're seeing what the potential is for the cuisine. It's not available everywhere yet, which is why everyone isn't vegan yet, because I think that the minute there is um, widespread availability of ingredients and techniques and this know-how, um, that there's really no reason for anyone ever to eat animal protein again, that there's going to be so many other ways of de- de- delivering the same flavor without the harmful animal protein that there's there's really no reason to do it any other way. One of the lines that I highlighted is you talk about traditionally there people have given three reasons for going vegetarian or vegan. One is for individual health, one is for the environment, and one is for ethics. And you said there's a fourth reason, which is maximizing flavor. And um, I'm curious how you began to incorporate that maximizing flavor into your own cooking. You, you mentioned one way of getting, making sure you have a variety is to eat, eat in a different country each night. Well, what, yes. <laughs> what was your own personal, you know, I understand you're not, you're not a uh, professional chef. I guess your husband, Andrew, is a, is a professionally trained chef. Um, but yeah. what, what, did, what did the transition look like, you know, rubber hits the road on your, your dinner plate every night? Well, you know, the evolution, you know, has has been um, in some ways gradual, in some ways all at once. So we did stop eating meat. Um, I I think by the time the book went to print, I was still describing myself as a 99% vegetarian, although I would say that's probably a... 
essentially 100% now. I'm more like uh, 99% vegan because I really don't eat eggs and uh, eat very little dairy. Um, and it's more... I think I could eat 100% plant-based, um, except that the availability isn't there. I live in New York City. It's very easy to do that. But the minute I travel, I get stuck at an airport. <laughs> and it doesn't even have to be that far. Um, you know, I get stuck at Newark, and I know they've got good things planned. They're planning on bringing in Dirt Candy, which is a great vegetarian restaurant with vegan options here in New York City. So they're going to put an outpost of that at the airport. But it's not there yet, and it's one of the toughest places I've ever tried to eat a plant-based diet. Um, so, you know, thing, things are changing. I think what I found um, a, a huge shift was that I've, I probably eat a lot more mushrooms than I ever have before. And I think that they take on a whole new role in your diet, um, nutritionally, texturally, gastronomically, um, if you're not eating meat. Because I think there's it's sort of the, you know, meat of the plant world. You, you might look at mushrooms that Way. And in fact, if you look at the names of a lot of the mushrooms that are featured in the Vegetarian Flavor Bible, you'll find lobster mushrooms and oyster mushrooms and chicken of the woods and hen of the woods. And these are all names that are based on the textural and flavor um, um, associations with, that these mushrooms have. You know, you can have an oyster mushroom and there are elements of salinity and, you know, you can sort of get it to taste a bit like the sea and so you'll get that experience of eating an oyster through eating an oyster mushroom and you can play that up in the kitchen um, through various tricks and various um, seasoning um, applications. Uh, you can play that up as much as you want or, or play it the other way. So there's lots of applications. So I think in previous books, um, the original Flavor Bible that came out in 2008 um, had just a f few pages of mushrooms, not very many of them at all. I think there's fully 16 and a half pages on mushrooms in the Vegetarian Flavor Bible because the, each mushroom, each different type takes on a whole new importance and has different applications. It has different flavor pairings that, that bring out the best in it. It has different flavor affinities, uh, groups of three or more ingredients that work. they work really well with that you can keep in mind when you're working working with them. Um, there's lots of techniques that you want to apply uh, to each mushroom differently. So I think in the old days, people would say, oh, mushrooms go with this, mushrooms go with that, mushrooms and Pinot Noir are great. Now I think, again, part of our evolution uh, in gastronomy is we're getting increasingly distinct um, about what differences we're seeing uh, between similar ingredients and getting um, much more uh, detailed about those distinctions and understanding them and working with them. So I think the more you understand about flavor, the more you can bring to any dish you're creating in your kitchen and even to your appreciation of the experience in the dining room. I think the Vegetarian Flavor Bible, a lot of people who read it are foodies who really don't spend much time cooking and they're just fascinated to understand flavor on a whole new level. And there's so little education that's being done of the palate that to be able to read a book that really says, oh, you mean flavor and taste aren't interchangeable? You mean taste is really just a subset of flavor? That also includes um, 
aroma that includes mouthfeel, such as texture and temperature. It includes other factors that go into flavor, um, you know, some of the human experiences that we bring to the experience of flavor, like our other senses, like our other human experiences, our hearts, our minds, our spirits. All of that is wrapped up into flavor. And we sort of call, we call it the X factor is sort of a catch-all phrase for um, saying there's a lot going on when you're experiencing flavor, but the more you understand it, the more awareness you can bring to the experience, the more enjoyment you can have. Well, that, that reminds me a little bit of you know, the work that I did with Dr. T. Colin Campbell on whole, which was an exploration of what a holistic view as opposed to the dominant reductionist view um, in this case of, of nutritional science. But in, in your case, it seems like the X factor and breaking out flavor into, into these larger, you know, s- separate but interconnected components is, is a step towards a holistic understanding of the experience of eating. Beautifully said. And can I backtrack for one second? Because I think you you deserve some credit here. Um, And this isn't something I I think I've mentioned to you before, but um, you and Dr. Campbell had a huge influence on the book. I think the original version, not too far behind um, of the Vegetarian Flavor Bible, when I was working on the listings, I had been researching the individual nutrient components of every ingredient. And so I was listing, you know, what um, ingredients were strong in vitamin A or vitamin D. And, you know, I was going, getting into the real nitty gritty. And once I read whole, I just thought it was so brilliant. I took it all out and it represented, I don't, I don't want to say how many hours, how many weeks (laughs) of effort, but I just took it off because you know what? I knew you were right. I think we have a limited understanding of what we know about any subject in the universe. It's so complex and I think food is no different, nutrition is no different, and that the what's important about nutrition and food isn't those distinct elements and listing them. It's really about eating whole foods. And you made in that one book you made all of that work I did obsolete and I was happy to take it out because I think the simpler it is, the more people can really grasp what's important in food. That it isn't those individual aspects of it, but it's that we eat whole, whole foods is mo- so much more important than those specifics. So anyway, I, I, uh, even though it was uh, at a bit of inconvenience to me, I wish the book had come out sooner so it could have influenced me sooner. I could have saved some time. Um, I'm still really grateful to you and to Dr. Campbell for your work and specifically for that work in whole for really um, bringing out the fact that we we don't know all the components that are in whole foods that make them so good for us, but we know they're there and that's the important thing. Oh, well, I, I am thrilled to hear that. I will, I will pass that on and I'm also thrilled that uh, I had some part in, you know, your book. I'm trying to imagine it with all those um, nutritional facts interspersed. <laughs> you know, I, I'm glad I'm glad we were able to uh, to turn it from a, a sort of an inventory of chemicals <laughs> in, into really what I, I see it as this this ch- chapter three is just a giant love poem to food. 
Oh, well, you made it even more so, I think, by being able to take some of that information out and to really focus on, you know, what's important, nutrient density, flavor affinities, what can you take, you know, this this particular plant that, you know, we're we're blessed to have on our planet, we're blessed to grow in our gardens, we pick it, what are we going to do with it, how do we celebrate it and put it on the plates in a way that, that does the, um, the plant itself justice, that makes us happy, that makes us healthy, and that's really the book that I've, I hope I've written that um, I'm getting feedback from uh, readers in these early months that they're connecting with as well. And that is incredibly satisfying. I think what, what will make the book a success in my eyes is not how many copies it sells, but really how many new plant-based dishes end up on tables in restaurant dining rooms and especially at homes all across the country where people, you know, get the courage to sign up for a CSA box and encounter a vegetable they've never seen before and say, hey, I can use the Vegetarian Flavor Bible to figure out how to cook it and what ingredients to combine with it to make something really delicious and fun. And that's the part that I'm most excited about. Wow. So I, w- I wanted to ask you about that because it seems like you know the um, your original Flavor Bible, I don't know how many copies it sold. It's certainly you know not on many homemakers' shelves that I know, but I'm, I'm, I'm imagining that it's that any good chef or restaurateur would have a copy. This it's kind of required reading. Yeah, it's um, it's done really well that way. I think it's in its three hundred thousandth um, copy in print wow. in the United States, and it's also been translated into Chinese and German and Russian and French. So um, yeah, it's uh, something that. Um, a bit to my surprise has had a real uh, universal appreciation um, not just in the United States but around the world and so um, it's something that again it isn't intuitive to everyone and you kind of do have to be a bit of an intuitive cook to get it because there's not a lot of how-to in the flavor bible you have to understand um, basically intuitively how it works or you have to have read about it at a, at a food website where they um, give an example of how they used it to come up with a new recipe and of course there's gazillions of examples like that out there of different food bloggers who are using it to come up with um, a new salad, a new soup, a new entree. Um, brewers will use it. As I just saw a tweet yesterday, I think, from a brewer saying that they found it invaluable in coming up with new flavors of beer. Um, so I don't know when, they, when they're trying to decide, you know, different um, uh, herbs, spices, other seasonings to throw into their beer to give it um, a different flavor that they're actually consulting the flavor Bible for that. Um, certainly mixologists also use it to come up with new cocktails because the essence of, um, you know, they call it mixology now in the old days, we call them bartending, um, but coming up with mixed drinks that the essence of that is really flavor compatibility. And so if you understand what flavors work well together, you know, you know, apples work well with caramel and peanuts because as a kid, I used to eat caramel apples dipped uh, in crushed peanuts. Well, I can use that information to combine apple cider with vodka and um, take my martini glass and rim it with a little bit of caramel and then roll that caramel rim into some crushed peanuts and pour my martini into it. And I've got an apple cider martini that brings back the flavors of my childhood with caramel and peanuts. And you can use, once you understand the principles of flavor compatibility, you can use them in cooking, you can use them in mixology, you can use them to make beer, you can use them in a whole host of applications. And that's the fun and exciting part. 
So, yeah, so I wanted to ask you, so I understand you're, you're hoping that this will lead to lots of dishes by, by chefs in restaurants. And certainly reading this, imagining myself as a chef and seeing first, you know, the, the early chapters explanation of the sort of the history of the plant-based and vegetarian movement, the, um, the modern history of gastronomy and, and the best chefs in the world moving in this direction. And then the chapter three with, with all the, all the details. Um, I'm curious how you see people like me using it. Cause I, as I looked at it, you know, I've got a, maybe 150 cookbooks, which I, I know is excessive, but looking at this one, it felt like this is kind of the source code and all the others are, are sort of programs and applications. And that there's some way that I could use this to not necessarily make the other ones unnecessary or irrelevant, but to to do for myself what they have done for me in the past is is that how you you think of sort of ordinary homeowners uh, householders using the veg the vegetarian flavor bible well i think um you know it's funny because i think in some of the reviews of the flavor bible itself people were comparing it to sort of the rosetta stone of recipe creation it kind of it's what underlies the rest of it so you have come up with that all on your own i like the source code actually um and i think that you can use it in one of two ways i talked about the intuitive cooks who really know how to you know make boil pasta or make it roll out a pizza dough um, and they're looking for inspiration of what to throw what are uh, compatible ingredients they can throw onto that base that they that they're already familiar with that they know um, to make it different so there aren't any recipes in the Flavor Bible or the Vegetarian Flavor Bible, what there is is inspiration. And so you can use it as, as you best see fit. Um, if you're more comfortable with step-by-step -step recipes, you can take um, a recipe that you're already really comfortable with that you might want to jazz up and look up one or two of the key ingredients, the flavor drivers of that recipe. You know, in the old days, I used to think that the animal protein was the flavor driver. So I would look up, you know, whatever it was and think, you know, what goes with that. In fact, like I said, I, I've learned so much about flavor since that point in time that um, I realized that vegetables and the herbs and the spices themselves are really the flavor drivers. So if you look up those ingredients in one of your favorite recipes and you can figure out, oh, it's pretty simple. You know, I, I've got this recipe for apple pie. I want to give it a different spin. You can look up apples in the vegetarian flavor Bible and it will tell you the herbs, spices, and other seasonings that best enhance the fl flavor of apples. So um, you can find what ingredients are already in that apple pie recipe you're using and find new ingredients that are compatible with those ingredients to throw in. <coughs> or you could use that as a um, as an accent, you know. <coughs> I'm sorry. <coughs> get, a, get a drink of water. <laughs> yeah, water's good too. So, so I'm, I just opened to the apple section. Um, it's four, almost four pages long. Um, so you've got um, techniques. Um, and then a whole list of ingredients that you could pair with apples from beets, blackberries, blueberries, brandy, uh, cabbage, uh, calvados, cardamom. And this, that, that's just the C's, B's and C's. Um, and then so then you've got this incredible list of flavor affinities. So just reading a couple of them. Apples plus allspice plus cinnamon plus cloves plus ginger plus maple syrup plus orange. 
And then a totally different one, apple plus, plus fennel plus walnuts, apple plus figs plus honey. So this, these are really, yeah, I could see how this is a Rosetta Stone for, for someone who says, okay, I want, I, want to, I want to do apples. I want to do something a little bit new. And this is what our, our culinary heritage going back probably tens of thousands of years has come up with. And you can you can be incredibly inventive. It's not like you're, um, you know, just blindly following a recipe. You can use this to be to enhance creativity as opposed to uh, admitting you don't have any. <laughs> I think that's exactly right. So whether you're you know coming up with uh, something to add to the apple pie itself you're coming up with a flavor of the ice cream that will be compatible with the pie the ideas are all basically there wow. so this i mean this is such an amazing book every, every ingredient you could think of i i asked my daughter this morning as i was preparing she says give me an ingredient and she says lavender so which which i thought was <laughs> Not not very sporting of her. You, know. <laughs> you must have that in your garden if she called lavender out. No, she was just trying to think of something that you probably wouldn't. She was trying have. to stump dad. <laughs> she was trying to stump stump the the, the vegetarian flavor bible. So I, I, I look, it's in there. <laughs> you, you know, I, indeed, I, the picture that Andrew Andrew did the photography for the book, and so there's a picture of lavender with this beautiful butterfly. Um, I think. Um, it's one of my favorite pictures in the book, so I'm glad she picked that one, and you got to see that page. Yeah, it's it's absolutely gorgeous. And you, see, you know, baked goods, berries, caraway seeds, carrots, cinnamon, cherries. Who knew? Exactly. Well, America's leading chefs know, and I'm so grateful that they shared their insights. Um, so that you know, a lot of times when you're playing around in the kitchen, you can throw things together and you can get lucky, but many more times you can make mistakes. And I think that this is a book that will hopefully help people um, make fewer and fewer mistakes and have a lot more fun and with a lot more confidence. Right. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, I'm fully expecting in the next, you know, two to five years that so many restaurant menus are going to shift and whether it's, it's slightly or seismically. Um, remains to be seen, but due, due to this incredible volume. So before before I got it, I didn't really understand the the cultural significance of what I was what I was looking at. And in fact, the book you know the, the, the book helped me do that. You have you know you're quite a historian, and there's a whole section on kind of the history of the plant based vegetarian vegan movement. And one of the things that really surprised me was that. You know, along with like really sort of historically important events like the publication of The Jungle and Tolstoy's writing and things like that is publications of cookbooks. And I have, you know, a bunch of those cookbooks, you know, Laurel's Kitchen, um, you know, the Tassahara Bread Book. I, I have some of them I've, I've let go of and now I'm sad because just because I don't cook from, you know, the moosewood anymore, it's still it's still a part of history that I, w I wish I still had on my shelf. Well, you know, there's a new 40th anniversary edition out from Molly Katzen. So that's something you might want to take a look at. Well, it's, it's, it, it had better come with lots of stains to replace the old <laughs> one. 
Yeah, there's even a picture of the very original um, Moosewood cookbook, which was basically just a spiral-bound book uh, on page 47 in the Vegetarian Flavor Bible next to a stack of hardcover books. Uh. And you can see how um, humble it really was. And Molly Katzen told me uh, while I was researching this book that she had no idea that anybody besides a few friends and family were ever going to take a look at her hand-printed recipes and her drawings. Um, she saw it much more as putting together, you know, a very personal diary that was just going to be sh- shared with a few and not something that would go on to sell millions of copies and, you know, be shared over 40 years with um, millions of strangers. Right. Well, you know, I, I wish the same for the Vegetarian Flavor Bible. And I'm, I'm so grateful for the work that you and Andrew have put in. I'm so grateful for the community of, of generous and brilliant and forward-thinking uh, chefs that you introduced me to. And I'm so grateful that everyone who listens to this can go out and, and find a copy somewhere. I'm sure it'll be uh, you know, in the reference section of libraries if you, uh, if you can't afford one right now. But really, this is, this is the book to get if you don't feel like buying the next 20 cookbooks that come out. So it's, uh, I would say it has a, a very good cost of ownership uh, <laughs> potential well, to I it. Think- <laughs> to to the credit of uh, our dear friends who also write uh, culinary books, I'll say that I think of the Vegetarian Flavor Bible not as a book to replace other wonderful books, but really to help turbocharge them and to give you inspiration for the recipes you might find in other books um, and how you can maybe give them your own personal twists and turns and really make some of those recipes your own with your own creativity. So definitely um, a wonderful companion volume to uh, other books that you might be thinking of getting or that certainly that you already have in your collection that you want to bring new life to. Excellent. Yep. And so in, in 100 years, when someone else writes the, you know, another book on the history of, um, of food, of culture, of environmental stewardship, of, of human evolution, the, the publication of the Vegetarian Flavor Bible will, will have a listing in there. Oh, wouldn't that be a lovely thought? Thank you for that. <laughs> I appreciate that. Well, so Karen Page, thank you so much for taking the time. It really has been a a huge pleasure to, to talk food and to talk about your journey. And may you go from strength to strength. Before we go, how can people find a copy of the book and how can they stay in touch with you? Oh, um, very kind of you to ask. Uh, Vegetarian Flavor Bible is available on Amazon and Barnes & Noble at better independent bookstores all across the country. And we did go out on book tours, so there's even uh, signed copies lining the bookshelves of a number of independents across the country. So keep an eye out for those. Um, And you can reach us uh, at karenandandrew.com or on Twitter. Our handle is also Karen and Andrew. And Facebook, it's as well, Karen and Andrew. Awesome. And uh, out of curiosity before we go, what are you working on now? Um, I just uh, came to uh, an agreement uh, for my next two books. I'm still keeping a little bit under wraps until uh, it's officially announced, but I'm really excited about it. Um, and I'll just say that it's sort of a continuing the exploration of uh, creativity that I'm so fond of that um, has been going on for 
the last 20 years now with the publication of Becoming a Chef in 1995 and Culinary Artistry in 1996 um, were really some of the first studies of culinary artists as artists, the same way that people have studied musicians and how they became musicians um, and how they think about composing music. Uh, we took on studying culinary artists and how they became who they are and, and approach what they do um, in a very, in, in quite a unique way. So um, I look forward to that next iteration of studying their creativity and um, I'm really excited about it. I'll keep you posted. Wow, I hope so. That sounds absolutely fabulous. So again, Karen Page, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me today, Howard. I really enjoyed our conversation. Me too. Bye-bye. Bye. Well, I hope you really enjoyed that interview with Karen Page. I hope you learned as much as I did. And I urge you to go out and get a copy of the Vegetarian Flavor Bible. It is an impressive volume. If you're a great cook, it's the blueprint for inventing new things, for taking your creativity to a higher level. If you stumble around in the kitchen, like I do, um, and you've never made up your own recipe in your life except when you kind of squinted and misread things or there was a blotch of sauce and you put in too much turmeric because you couldn't read the uh, quarter teaspoon, then this is the way to start to come into your own in the kitchen, to use your own creativity in conjunction with flavor principles that have been around for hundreds and hundreds of years. Uh, some great upcoming shows. I'll let you find out about them in due time. And if you live in a part of the country where spring has sprung, I urge you to get out there and plant something as you plant yourself. And as always, be well, my friends. <music>